Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, Fred Obiero. Hello, and welcome to the Ivy Podcast. My guest today is John Owens, Senior Vice President of Delivery at CGI Federal. How are you, John? How's it going? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Before we start on this episode, I have one small request to our listeners. As we continue to grow the Ivy Podcast, we would appreciate if you would take just a minute of your time to leave us a review on the show because reviews make a huge difference to podcast channels like ours. Now, time for the episode with John. So John, get us started by talking talking to us about yourself and your background in your current role at CGI Federal. Sure. Uh, So classically, I was educated in computer science at Clarkson University in upstate New York. I then went to work as a contractor for General Electric Aerospace, then E-Systems Melpar Division down here in Virginia. Uh, Then I worked at a little company uh, some of you may have heard of for about 13 years called America Online or AOL Inc or AOL LLC. And then I became the CIO for the United States Patent and Trademark Office for a little over nine years. Uh, While there, uh, leading that organization in IT and IT security, uh, I was introduced to CGI as, uh, as the contract, as a contractor. And I was drawn to them uh, because we shared uh, the ethics, uh, same ethics, and um, they had a very strong return on investment to me uh, as I got them to do various pieces of work, including uh, the new patents uh, search system, which is available internally and to the public. Uh, and that drew me to CGI, where I am today. And for our audience who may not be familiar with CGI Federal, just just talk to us on a high level. What does CGI Federal do? Sure. Um, CGI Inc. is a company out of Canada. Uh, There are about uh, 90,000 of members in CGI uh, in 40 countries uh, scattered around the globe. And uh, CGI Federal is a wholly owned subsidiary that works on federal government work here in the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, we are separate from the company uh, through a standard security agreement with the United States government. But we operate as a wholly owned subsidiary, applying our talents to uh, benefit the federal government and make delivery uh, for the American people. Wonderful. There have been several high profile cases of cyber attacks in recent years. What are some of the lessons learned from these types of attacks and how do agencies remain vigilant to protect themselves on a continuous basis? Well, the lessons learned, I I think you have to go back to the start because a lot of people don't like to make an investment in security until after it's too late, right? So no one wants, no one likes paying for insurance until your house burns down. And then you're like, wow, I really wish I had insurance. Yeah, I wish I had insurance. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, 
I think the first thing to understand and the lessons learned is you really do need to make the investment upfront, right? Because the bad actors that are out in the world, whether they're criminals or state actors, um, there's more of them than likely there are of you. And you have to be in a constant state of vigilance because as the world evolves and software evolves, new vulnerabilities are found, new ways to penetrate social engineering, uh, even simple stuff like spear phishing or emails to steal credentials. All of that is a constant attack on your environment and your business. Whether your business is in the public or private sector does not matter. It is a constant fight. And so making that investment up front to have the right set of tools, the right set of standards, the right policies, practices, and procedures. Of course, I would like to think that most of us can read the, the NIST standards, the National Institutes of Science and Technology here in the United States, or have well-documented standards on protecting yourself as best as you can and dealing with issues as they crop up. Um, and then having the right partners, because it's not a fight you want to go to alone. So having the right partner with the right level of skills that can bring experience and innovation and double check on what you're doing mm -hmm. uh, is also critical to protecting yourself and success. And if you do all of these things, you put yourself in a position to not only fight off the bulk of the attacks, but if the worst were to happen, then rapidly and efficiently deal with that breach uh, and also limit your exposure, which are two critical things. Right, I have a question here regarding, let's say from an organization, organizational perspective, you've been hacked um, and there's sometimes this fear of going public with this information because of the negative press that's gonna come associated with all, all this data got leaked on the internet. How should organizations handle this type of an attack? Let's say, you know, bad actors penetrated and information got leaked out to the public that was not supposed to be out there. What's the best response to some of this information from an organization perspective um, in the sense of making sure that everybody who's impacted is aware of the ramifications of, of this data breach? Well, first and foremost, I think every organization, if they have the right policies, practices, standards, tools, and properly trained people in place, your first and foremost is to stop, limit, you know, shut down that exposure, uh -huh. and then do a quick forensic analysis about what was exposed or lost. At that point, I think you got to go and be as open to the public as you can about it. If you've lost public data, you have to go and tell the public that was affected that you lost it. Hiding it certainly doesn't do anyone any good. I think we've all seen organizations that try to hide these things for a while. Yeah. Um, and it never really pans out for them. It really does lose trust. In the federal government sector, notifying the appropriate security folks in various branches of the federal government, as well as the customer that may have been impacted. There are contractual obligations to do that. Uh, in fact, notifications in general, there are legal uh, precedent for those type of things. And But I think you have to go and be very direct. We uh -huh. had a breach. 
I don't think anyone's shocked anymore when someone loses a piece of data or was breached by a hacker. I know I get a couple notices a year. I don't know about you, but I do. I, yeah. Uh -huh. And so I think what people want to hear is I'm being honest with you. I'm protecting you. We limited the exposure. We're letting you know. So you're part of the solution. Right. And we've done everything we can to make sure that A, it doesn't happen again, but B, that whatever exposure that then you had personally, that we're here to stand with you and protect you. I think the government's pretty much the same way. Right. Be yeah. They want to know, obviously, hiding it's not a good idea. Uh, and then what did you do to stop it? How did it get in? Did you plug the hole? Right. Uh -huh. And then uh, let us know what we need to do, because if there is loss of data, we need to understand what those bad actors could do with that data to prevent further further breaches or issues. Right. And I, and I know I've gotten emails in the past from different companies explaining the type of attack or, or data loss and requesting that you change your password um, just to make sure you're safe. And I think that's also why it's important for companies to make sure that they go public with any data breaches they encounter. Absolutely. And, you know, changing your passwords often, making sure they're difficult to guess, um, make sure they're long enough, enough and complex enough, uh, keeping them secure and encrypted, right? Don't like keep them in your phone unprotected. Yeah. Don't make it QWERTY on the keyboard. Right, right. And, or <laughs> password or something silly like that. But also use two-factor, it's not universal protection, but using two-factor when, uh, uh, of course, possible. Um, making it as difficult as possible for someone to steal your credentials and access your sensitive data, including, you know, banking data, medical data, whatever, the better off you're, you'll be and the less exposure we all get. Right. Right. So in 2021, President Biden signed an executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity. In what ways have agencies responded to this executive order? to ensure that federal government systems are stronger and safer so they're harder to break into? So every president for the last three or four presidents uh, have had executive orders around security and each one of them build upon one another. So the previous one, uh-huh. Yeah, the government is slower than industry, but industry doesn't like to spend money. Government has money, but they're slower to adopt new technology. Um, what these executive orders encourage is a rapid expansion inside of government uh -huh. uh, to adopt the National Institute of Science and Technology or NIST standards, uh, and then invest in the right tools and partners and monitoring so that threats can be identified quickly uh, and uh, stopped when possible and the right level of uh, protection put in place. Now, cyber threats are continuously evolving. And as a former CIO in the federal government for mm -hmm. nine years plus, um, I personally would look at the gaps uh, that I had in my organization. Uh, I regularly used a third party company with the right, uh, what's known as a red team. 
Uh, those are the people you, they're ethical hackers that come in and try to hack into your environment uh, to find out where my vulnerabilities are. I would mm -hmm. do a heavy set of scans. Uh, so the right partners, the right tools, the right diligence. I, we ran our own uh, NOCSOC, Network Operations Center, Security Operations Center, 24 by seven monitoring of our access points to the internet and who was doing what, when, where, why, and how. So all of that data would give me a pretty clear, and it's continuous, by the way, right. it, it never ends. And it give me a pretty clear picture of where our major vulnerabilities are and what the newest exploits would do in my organization. And then I'd work to, you know, with this, what this executive order works to do is encourage the spending of money to plug those holes, to do education and so on. You've said something interesting there about governments always have money, but they're always slow to adapt new technologies. And that segues well to my next question, which was what are the biggest challenges of implementing cybersecurity at federal agencies? You know, Ed, it's really how quickly the government can adapt with the right skill sets. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when you're leading an organization in the federal government as a CIO, you rely on technology partners, uh, contractors like CGI to fill in some of the technology gaps uh, and some of the skill gaps to, uh, to offer and bring to you tools as well as third-party outside evaluations uh, to, to clear, make a clear picture of what's going on. Then of course, the government themselves, um, so uh, CGI works for the Department of Homeland Security on the CDM program. We do continuous scanning on behalf of the government to all the government agencies, continuously trying to find the vulnerabilities. All of that data comes up and a CIO, for example, is uh, rated on a report card and they're made open to the public. And mm -hmm. you can see where who has passing grades and who doesn't. And then, of course, you have to work to close the hole. So working with those third-party contractors with the right tools and the right experience, you then have to shut the security gaps or put up further protections to protect against intrusion and exploitation by those bad actors. And so you really have to surround yourself with the, the, the correct team. You have mm -hmm. to educate your own people right? Because federal right. government employees need education too. They need the right set of tools. They certainly need to stand vigilant watch with, you know, their partnered companies uh, and perform these functions in order to get a clear picture. And a lot of times federal agencies are reluctant to do that, uh, to have the right level of partnerships or even spend the right level of money. And that's where these executive orders really come in because they encourage people to spend the money in the right uh -huh. places to protect first. Because like I said, no one wants to have their house burned down and not have insurance, right? Yeah. And so it's all about doing the right thing to prevent what I would say is an inevitability. It will um, happen. It's just a matter of when. That's correct. Yeah. As we all know, even the most robust cybersecurity applications need to be reinforced and updated over time. And why is that? Because bad actors, as you've said, 
always try to reinvent themselves and find ways that they can penetrate into government systems. How do you and your team prepare for the next cyber threat? Well, in CGI, we do have our own red team. Of course, we sell our red team services as well. So those ethical hackers uh-huh. uh, play a critical role because they think and act like hackers. They visit the dark web. They're constantly watching for the new methods to break into facilities. Um, and so you got to start there. You got to try to put yourself in the enemy's shoes for a minute. Yeah. Those bad actors employ tools and knowledge that are, are available um, that shouldn't be available in some instances, but, and they're constantly watching when one of them finds a new vulnerability in an application or a server or an operating system or even physical infrastructure, they share that, that information rapidly amongst everyone. And a good company will continuously monitor uh, the dark web for vulnerabilities in their own application. So the first thing you have to do is you have to employ the services or have a red team of your own that keeps on top of these um, vulnerabilities and issues. For example, recently there was a targeted phishing scheme, uh, kind of a browser in the middle attack where someone would send a phishing email to someone, link them to a website that was a mirror of a corporation or a government website, get them to log in with their credentials, steal their cookies, kick them offline. So the the browser in the middle would literally then log into the real website with even their two-factor authentication and then be able to maintain that session and have access to data. Uh, Knowing how those attacks happen and then how devising ways to prevent them is critical to keeping ahead of the curve, right? Because right. if they send out 10,000 emails, probabilities or more, probability says someone's going to click and fall for it. And so by being prepared and being proactive and thinking like them with a red team or something similar is the first step, I think, of being critical. Of course, with keeping up with the latest trends, you do have to have the appropriate level of monitoring, a security operations center, usually linked uh, linked to your network operations center that has a set of tools and skilled individuals uh, that can operate the tools and monitor things to say, oh, someone fell for it. We have to block person X, remove Mm -hmm. their credentials, kick off all their sessions because we know that that attack is happening because they fell for the phishing scheme or wow, it's really odd that Bob logged in from a country outside the United States. He shouldn't be doing that. Let's let's block that and remove their credentials and contact Bob. And so that the continuous vigilance is another with the right set of tools and skills is an, another big one. Yeah, yeah, and just to follow up on the on the tools that people use to remain vigilant, a lot of companies have their data housed in cloud environments, could be public or private clouds, and there may be a false sense of security in thinking that the cloud service provider will be doing all of your security apparatus um, oversight. How do companies or how should companies make sure that they're also doing their part 
to to reinforce data, you know, strong data mechanisms and make sure that their data is not going to fall into bad actors? Well, that gets to uh, Biden's uh, latest memo, um, the secure that you you mentioned a little earlier, his executive, the executive order. order. Uh huh. So part of that is known as zero trust. So zero trust is a concept that says, I'm going to keep all of my data, no matter if it's in the public cloud, no matter if it's on my own servers, wherever it is, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to keep it highly encrypted at rest, which means in storage, uh-huh. highly encrypted in transit, right? And uh-huh. then limit exposure. Um, now, there are many companies that can help you with this. Of course, CGI is one of them. We have um, Secure Data Fabric as a tool. And what that tool does is it takes data from various repositories and that where it's encrypted, and it uses limited credentialing to get pieces of that data, never the data in whole, and say, okay, John can have access to these three pieces of information inside of that encrypted database for a limited amount of time. And then it prevents John, myself, from copying that data, but I get to use and see the data for, let's say, two days, um, no more, no less. And so it limits the exposure. So if I were to be hacked, then that bad actor would get literally those three pieces of data if they were within that few day window, in which case, the data, the access to that data is revoked. Now, this limits the amount of exposure, right? Because for too long, we've thrown massive amounts of data. And yes, we've encrypted it. And yes, it's even encrypted in transmission. But once somebody's been given access, they pretty much have access to the whole thing. And then let's face it, most companies are really bad about limiting how much access to the data and taking away those rights over a period of time once the access isn't needed. And so your exposure inside of an organization would just continue to grow forever, right? As various people would need access to the data, you'd grant it to them, you'd never take it away, and it just got out of control. And bad actors look for the big score. They want to go after voluminous amounts of data. They want to steal it or encrypt it or Mm -hmm. take it away from you, hold it for ransom, make money, sell it on the dark web. And so it's pretty disappointing to them when they hack somebody and they go through all that effort. And what they got was a very limited, you know, three pieces of information for six days. And then they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Right. It's not the big score. I'm not going to get millions of dollars in in cryptocurrency over it. And so it, 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 the zero trust architecture helps enforce everything else that I was talking about. And as the government does work to invest in that zero trust architecture with products like secure data fabric, what they are basically saying is like you and I just said before, it's only a matter of time till the breach happens. Right. But if you have to have a breach or it's inevitable, you want it with the smallest footprint exposure possible and for the smallest amount of time. And that's where the zero trust architecture 
the management of data. And it doesn't matter if it's in the cloud or local, as long as you can use the principles appropriately, it, it, it'll work the same no matter where it is. Um, but it limits your exposure and the inevitability that the breach happens, basically. All right, John, this is my last question. It's one of my favorite questions to ask um, to all our guests to come on because I get a variety of responses. Uh, what has helped you to get to where you are? And what, what of advice would you give to someone that wants to pursue a career that's similar to yours? Well, I really enjoy my career. Uh, I started before I got the lobotomy and moved into management. I was a, a software engineer. Um, you know, like I said, I went to school at Clarkson University, heavy engineering school, uh, math, science, technology, uh, more STEM than STEAM, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so I've, I've really enjoy building and fixing and, and, and doing things other people hadn't. And, and so the first thing I would do is say, don't get discouraged, produce those science and technology uh, dreams, right? Pursue uh -huh. education, maybe not necessarily a degree, but an education in those areas, and then help solve problems with them. Because I get personally an immense amount of satisfaction uh, with the finished product. You know, when I, when I first got out of school and I uh, I went to work at General Electric. I worked on um, uh, the sonar systems for the Seawolf and uh, the refit of the 688 submarine back in the day. Then I worked for E-Systems and I worked for signal intercept systems. And then, of course, when I went to work for, for AOL, we were pioneers in the internet. And I remember the day that we had the first million people simultaneously online, which had never been achieved before. It was, wow. It was one of those days. And now it's, well, of course you can do that now, but back in 95, 98, it was a huge deal. And so I personally love solving problems that other people haven't solved before. And we're now being in leadership or management, building teams of people that solve even bigger problems on an even bigger scale. Uh, you know, Momentum is a product that uh, is used by about 40% of federal agencies to manage their money. Doesn't sound very glamorous, but you have to realize that most more money gets processed and handled with, you know, full accountability in the Momentum system than the gross national products of most countries in the world. And That's it impressive. happens every day, day and night with, you know, zero, not a penny lost. And um, it, you know, it contributes to the efficient running of our government and the buyings of products and services for our government that carries on the American dream. And, and it's something that I believe in. Uh, our other products and services, whether it's Sunflower and managing um, you know, assets, including real world assets, uh, and it's used by a variety of organizations in both the public and private sector, or even the SDF product. We build these products and services to continue to grow. So as part of my career, I've always felt like I've contributed to something more than just myself. And um, I would highly encourage someone to take, take that on, whether it's in private industry or public. Uh, and help the world move forward to be a better and safer place, preferably more secure. 
Wonderful. I appreciate you talking to us today, John. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ivy Podcast. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.